of you this morning. Uh, we're in week two of our Advent series. Each week in this series, we're taking a passage from the book of Isaiah, and we're looking at the theme of how Jesus restores. Today, we're looking at Jesus for the hopeless. Uh, as we get started this morning, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been in the waiting room, in the waiting room of a hospital, waiting to find out what a diagnosis would be? Maybe you're waiting on someone to get out of surgery. Um, waiting in a waiting room in a hospital is one of the most difficult places to be, not knowing what's going to happen to a loved one, not knowing what the doctors are going to come back with in terms of a diagnosis. I remember back in 2018, I saw a couple of doctors, an ENT, and they noticed some inflammation in the left side of my neck. And it took about four or five weeks to find out whether or not I had thyroid cancer and it was over Christmas of 2018, and thank the Lord, it ended up being negative. But those four or five weeks, I had a hard time thinking about anything besides whether or not I had cancer. Waiting is a hard place to find ourselves. And we're waiting. Right now, we're in the waiting room. We're in the waiting room of life. And we, we find ourselves waiting in various situations on various different uh, important themes that are going on uh, in our lives. This is falling apart here. Sorry. There we go. Um, you know, maybe you're waiting on something to do with a family member, maybe a child. There's something going on in their life. Maybe you're waiting to find out whether or not your child is ever going to embrace faith in Christ, and now they're living apart from you. It's just really hard to wait on the Lord in a situation like that. We've been waiting as a church, waiting for 21 months on meeting in an indoor facility. That's a long time to wait, waiting on this project to be completed. By the way, it's looking like we're going to be waiting one more week, which is December the 19th. And we, uh, we are basically telling the contractor we're moving in anyway. We've passed a lot of inspections. Uh, plumbing was passed. Electrical was passed. Uh, I say this Genuinely, you need to pray for our AC subcontractor. Big seating and air, they're, they're having a hard time completing their part of the project. Uh, pray for them, for real. This next week, they need to do some work that they needed to do about three months ago. And so uh, let's pray for them to finish the job so we can move in. But we're waiting. We're waiting on that. Zach just gave us an announcement on finances. We're waiting. Every December, a church waits on year-end giving. How's that going to go? How's it going to go this year? Uh, is the Lord going to provide for us? We're waiting on COVID. We're waiting on a turn. Will things get better? Or will we stay in the same pattern? But we're waiting. We've been waiting for 49 years on Roe v. Wade uh, to be overturned. Maybe 2022 will be the year when it's either overturned or, or that law is greatly changed so that less unborn children will be aborted in our country. 49 years, if you're if you're less than 50 years old, you've never lived in an America where abortion wasn't legal. And so we pray and long for that day. We're waiting on those laws to be changed, to be aligned more rightly with God and his character. We're waiting on that. By the way, as you're waiting, if the law is overturned or greatly changed in June of 2022, which would be wonderful, you also need to consider the pressure, the immense pressure that's going to put on young moms, and on children who will be born who would not have been born otherwise. 
So the church needs to be passionate about the changing of laws. We need to be passionate also about the support of those children and young moms who will have children in those times. Will, will we adopt more? Will we financially be generous with those mothers and those children more than we, we have been to this point? There's a lot more to responding to the overturning or changing of that law than simply having the law overturned. But we're waiting on that. We're waiting on that. What are you waiting for this morning in your personal life, in your marriage, with your children, with your extended family? What are you waiting for right now? We're in the waiting room. Ultimately, we're waiting on our king to return. We're waiting on redemption. We're waiting on all the wrongs of this world to be made right. We're waiting. And in the waiting room, you can, do, you can respond in three different ways. The first way you can respond is you can, uh, you can light fires for yourself. I'm not going to go into this passage. Isaiah 50, you should read it. Isaiah 50 is all about the coming king. He's going to return. He knows, only Jesus knows how to sustain those who are weary with a word. He's going to do it through his cross. He's going to do it through redemption. But we grow impatient, and instead of waiting on Jesus, we light our own fires to get out of the darkness. So that's my way of responding when I'm waiting. I get busier. I try to come up with solutions. I try to fix problems. I try to make the waiting stop. I try to get through the waiting. And so I just, I just gin up all kinds of energy and try to do more and more to make whatever that thing is go away. Maybe that's the way you respond. The second way you can respond in a time of waiting when you're in the waiting room is you can move toward anxiety. You can move toward despair. You can move toward hopelessness. You can look at all that's wrong in the world and it just weighs on you and you get to a point where you just have a difficult time connecting your heart with the promises of God. Well, you're in good company. St. Augustine said this about those times. He would read 1 Peter 5, 9. Cast your cares upon the Lord and he will sustain you. Give your anxieties to the Lord. And Augustine said this. When I, he said, when I cast my cares upon the Lord, when I tried to do 1 Peter 5, 9, there were times when I found myself unable to do that. He said, this is what happened in those times. Thou, God, were, wert not to me any solid or substantial thing. For thou were not thyself, but a mere phantom. And, and my error was my God. He's saying the error was on me. It was not in God. It was my God that I had constructed in my mind. He goes on, he says, If I offered to discharge my anxiety on you that it might rest, it glided through the void and came rushing back down upon me again. That's how Augustine said it was for him when he tried to cast his anxieties on the Lord. He's saying, I tried to do that, but, but my casting upon the Lord, because my God was not a God of substance, it just passed through God like a phantom, like a wisp of air, and came back down upon me. Sometimes maybe you feel that way, and it, it leads you in the direction of feeling hopeless. There's a third way you can respond, which is also a way that Augustine would respond at times. And there were times when God was a God of substance. When God, as, as my seminary professor John Frame said, he was a God of, of hard edges. He had real character. The real God of Scripture, 
and we can cast our anxieties on him in the waiting room of life. And if our God, if we, if we anchor our, our understanding of who God is in his word and in his character, then our anxieties can land on him and stay with him. But we have to conform our understanding of who God is to who God reveals himself to be in the scriptures. In the waiting room, we need a God of substance, not a God who is a mere phantom. And so today, that's a long introduction to getting to the point where today we're going to look at three aspects of God's character. Three truths about Jesus that can give him substance, that give him real life substance for us. When we're in the waiting room, we can cast our anxieties on the Lord. We can move out of just undirected busyness, trying to make the waiting room go away. We can move out of despair and hopelessness and put our hope in the living God. And there's no better scripture for us to be in this morning to consider this than Isaiah 43. Today we're going to learn how Jesus is our covenant. We're going to learn how Jesus is our exodus and how Jesus is our exchange. Jesus, our covenant, our exodus, in our exchange, all to the end that we will have a God, we do have a God of substance that we can put our hope in in the waiting room. So first of all, Jesus, our covenant. This is from verse 1. Jesus, our covenant. It starts out by saying, now this is what the Lord says. So Isaiah is speaking authoritatively. These aren't just Isaiah's words. This is what the Lord says to us about himself. This is important because in the waiting room, it can feel like our feelings about God are ultimately true. It can feel like our emotions about who God is are ultimately true, but actually what's true about God is what God says to us about himself, which is what we learn here in Isaiah 43. He starts out by saying, I created you. I gave life to you. I gave life to your being. He says, I formed you. I have taken care like a potter to shape you exactly as I planned. He says, I have redeemed you. Having created and formed you, I know your frame. One of my favorite parts of the Apostles' Creed is that the God who created us and formed us also suffered under Pontius Pilate. We have a God who didn't just create us but formed us, but then suffered for us how to do what to redeem us. That word redeem is a cultural image where you have a relative, a close relative that's fallen on hard times. And in the ancient Near East, a kinsman redeemer, a a family member would give themselves to this person so that this person would be ransomed out of the difficult position that they were in. And no one was more in a more difficult position than us, the people of God. And we needed our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, to redeem us, to bring us out of the very painful debt that we owed because of our sin. So Jesus created us, formed us, redeemed us, and he calls us by name. Not only did he redeem us, having redeemed us, he didn't stop there. He then calls us so that we won't miss it. He calls us by name. He calls us out, like we looked at last week. In Isaiah 55, he calls out in the marketplace of the world the ideas. He says, you are mine. I know your name. I've called you by name. You are mine. You are mine. You are my treasured possession. When when Paul is on the Damascus Road, Acts 9, 
Jesus calls out. He says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus' identity is so wrapped up in us and us being his people that he doesn't separate himself from us. He actually considers us to be so part of him that he would say, why are you persecuting me? So that when he suffered under Pontius Pilate, he suffered for you and me so that he could call us by name and we would be his. And this is Jesus, our covenant. So when you're in the waiting room, you have a God who created you, who formed you, who redeemed you, who calls you by name and says, you are mine. That is what is true in the waiting room. And so in the midst of times when we feel hopeless, we simply cannot afford to put our hope or our identity in the last person who liked our Instagram post or who didn't or who commented something about us on Facebook or didn't or who looked at us a certain way that we might ascribe to some sort of motive that they have for us or how well we did on that last work assignment or that last test we took. We simply cannot afford to rest our identity on these things. They are inconsequential and insubstantial in comparison to having Jesus as our covenant, having Jesus as the one who has said, I have called you by name and you are mine. I have a very good friend who is a Unitarian Universalist. He attends the church on Wade Avenue with his family. We've had a couple of spiritual conversations. I was surprised to hear that in the Unitarian Universalist church, they have Sunday school for children. So I asked him what the kids do in Sunday school. And he said that every week they go over their happies and their sads from the week before. And as, frankly, ridiculous as this sounds to me, that that we would be raising up children who would be putting their hope in their happies and their sads, it makes me want to reflect on what do I put my hope in? Is my theology, is my most important theology actually, meaning what I actually live my life by, what determines the course of my life, is it my happies and my sads? Is it my emotional disequilibrium? Is it what happened to me yesterday or this week? Or is our hope in the God of the covenant, in Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for us after suffering under Pontius Pilate? This is so important because we're all on this journey. We're on this journey of faith, and we are in the waiting room. (laughs) And in the waiting room, one second. All right. In the waiting room, things happen that you didn't plan on, like trains running by in the middle of your point. Things happen that you didn't plan on. There are so many things that are outside of our control, but in the waiting room, we need the humility to look away from ourselves, away from our own fire lighting in the darkness, our own ginning up energy and trying to get things done, or our own hopelessness. We need to put our hope not in our happies and our sads, but in the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us and who redeemed us, who calls us by name, 
and says, you are mine. That is the first way that we can add, we can understand the substance that is already God. Instead of looking into the void, the phantom, the wisp, when we cast our anxieties on the Lord, if we cast our anxieties on Jesus, our covenant, then we will find our anxieties resting on him rather than on ourselves. The second aspect of the substantial character of God that we're going to be looking at this morning is Jesus, our exodus. Jesus, our exodus. And we find this in verse 2, which is a very well-known verse. It says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And the waves, they will not overcome you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. And the flames, they will not consume you. If you have not memorized that verse, you should. It's an important one. What is, what is happening here? Well, Isaiah is pointing the people that he is preaching to who are in their own state of slavery. They're in exile in Babylon. They're in a place where they never wanted to be. They're waiting on God to redeem them. They're outside of the promised land. They're subjugated. They're mistreated. They're waiting They're in the waiting room in Babylon. And Isaiah is saying, remember who your God is. Your God is the God of Exodus. Your God is the God who who in the first Exodus, what did he do? When the people of God were enslaved in Egypt, God saw them. He saw them in their misery. And he made a way. And through the waters of baptism, when they were hard-pressed and Pharaoh was upon them, God made a way for them to walk through on dry land. Maybe you've seen pictures of this, but I think what Isaiah is doing is he is literally talking about the experience of walking through the Red Sea, where there are walls of water on either side, where at any moment those walls of water could have collapsed on God's people. But they didn't, and they walked through on dry land, waters remaining high, and then later, the waters come crushing down, not on God's people, who he's made covenant with, but on their enemies. Isaiah is saying to the people of exile, remember who your God is. He is faithful. You're in the waiting room. They were in the waiting room. God redeemed them. God will restore also you as well. He will restore you, and you need to wait on him. Don't take matters into your own hands, and don't grow hopeless. Instead, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the God of Exodus. He will restore you. And we too, we have moments where we are waiting on the Lord. We're in the waiting room. And we pass through fire and we pass through flood. We pass through circumstances that are far beyond our control that would absolutely take us down were it not for the Lord withholding those waters back. Were it not be for the God who, who goes with us, God does not promise that we won't go through the waters. He does not promise that we will not go through the fire. Look carefully at that verse. There is no promise that we will not endure great suffering in this world. We will and we are. The promise is that God will be with us, that he will be present with us. Psalm 23 When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you can fear no evil. Why? Because I am with you. God is with us when we go through the fire and and through the flood. Not only is God with us, but he is powerful within that space. We are not. 
We are not powerful within that space. But God is powerful. And so like Psalm 77 says, we find ourselves walking, walking through the fire, walking through suffering, but God's footsteps are unseen. We often cannot see the footsteps of God with us, but yet they are with us. And God is carrying us forward in the fire and in the flood. And ultimately, the exodus, there's the first exodus with Jesus, I mean, excuse me, with the exodus of, of Egypt, but there's the second exodus, which happened at the cross. This is the second exodus where Jesus Christ, this is the ultimate exodus where Jesus Christ was crushed for our sin. He was crushed so that we could have life. And in, through the cross, as we go through Jesus Christ, we go through the waters of baptism and we emerge on the other side. We emerge moving toward the promised land of heaven, but we find ourselves not in heaven yet. We find ourselves in the wilderness. We find ourselves like the people of God and like the people of God, We can build our own idols. That's taking matters into our own hands. We can grumble and murmur and complain and say we want to go back to Egypt. Or we can continue to press on looking at the God who has brought us safe thus far and will safely lead us home. Jesus Christ is the ultimate exodus for the people of God. Because Christ has come and brought that second exodus, that ultimate exodus, we can be sure, we can be sure that we will have that final exodus. We will cross over. Heaven will come to earth, and we will be with our God, and he will be with us forever. One interesting point about this, too, is that God is speaking of himself. If you look back at Isaiah chapter 42 at the end, God is not only present in suffering and powerful in suffering, he's also sovereign in suffering. It is God who brings the suffering. It is God who controls the margins of our suffering. It is God who is with us. Now, in in Israel's case, in both cases, in in Egypt when they were enslaved and in in, uh, exile, the suffering that was brought upon them was because of their sin. It was because it was directly correlated to their sin. And sometimes the suffering we experience in life is also because of our sin. But not always. This is an important point. Not always. The suffering we endure in this life sometimes is a direct consequence of sin. But sometimes it's not. And the Heidelberg Catechism gets this very well. It talks about the sin and the miseries of this world. The sin and the miseries of this world. Some of the suffering that you endure right now is because of your sin. But some of it is not. Some of it is because of the sin of Genesis 3 perpetrated out in the world, and the world is broken. And so there are sins that are done to you that may have been done to you, and it's been done to all of us. Those are not your fault. The sins that are done to you are not your fault. But you may be suffering because of sin that is done to you. Or you may just be suffering because you're part of this broken world. It could be your broken body. It could be broken circumstances. All sin is a result of Genesis 3, but not not all of the the consequences of sin that you experience are because of your own sin. That's just an important point to make. Even though Israel, you can directly correlate exile and slavery to the sins of Israel, you cannot always directly correlate the sufferings you experience to the sins that you've committed. Some of it just falls under this, 
this realm of the miseries of this world that we have to endure until God makes all things new. But you can be sure of this, that God is sovereign over all of that, every suffering that you experience, it's not a surprise to God. And you can be sure that no matter what valley of the shadow of death you are passing through, Jesus is with you and he is powerful in that space. He is the God of Exodus. He is the God of Exodus. Sometimes the relief that we need from fire and flood will come soon. Sometimes in the waiting room, the resolution of that will come soon. But we can be sure that we are in the waiting room only for a time. There will be a time when the waiting rooms of this world are over. There are no more waiting rooms, no more hospitals, no more waiting on brutal things in your life that are going on to be resolved. There will be a day, one day, we will wait no more. And that day is across that, that threshold of history when Jesus will come for us and he will make all things new again. But we can be certain of that because the God of Exodus back in the book of Exodus and the God of Exodus on the cross will bring Exodus to his people fully and finally in that last journey that we will take into heaven. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. I love Narnia. There's a a place in Prince Caspian where Lucy and the other children are lost and they're deep in the woods and they're, they're totally, they have no idea how to get themselves out of the mess that they've made for themselves. And in this moment, Aslan comes, and Aslan calls, and he calls out to Lucy, although the other children cannot see Aslan like Lucy can. In the middle of the night, Lucy wakes up and and sees Aslan walking through the woods, and sees Aslan on the move, and she gets up and she begins to follow Aslan. And there's this beautiful story where the, the trees also see Aslan, and they begin to dance, and Lucy begins to dance. The other children cannot see Aslan in this moment. Only Lucy can see him. But she continues to see Aslan, and she continues to follow Aslan. And the other kids figure out what's going on, even though Lucy uh, does. Even though Lucy is unaware, Lucy, all she can see is Aslan, and she is following him. And Aslan leads her out of the woods, and as she's being led out of the woods, and the trees are dancing, the other children are led out of the woods as well. This is a beautiful picture of Exodus in our real-time life stories. What you need to do if you're in the waiting room and you're struggling is you need to look for Aslan. Look for Jesus. Obviously, he's pictured here. You need to look for that crack in the door filled with light. You need to look for Jesus. And when you catch a glimmer of who he is, maybe the God of covenant or Exodus or exchange, which I'll get to just a minute, but maybe something else. You just need to walk toward him and follow him. Simply do that. Simply concern yourself with following him. And he will lead you away from the despair and hopelessness that you find yourself in. You don't need to resolve all of your problems. You don't need to understand why he's doing what he's doing. All you need to do is catch a glimpse of who he is or hear his voice and walk toward him and keep walking. And you'll find yourself getting out of the woods. So Jesus is our exodus. Jesus is also our exchange. This is the final verses, 3 through 7. He's our great exchange. Verse 3, it says, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. The Lord your God is an exodus title. The Holy One of Israel is one of Isaiah's most common names for God. So Isaiah is bringing the theology of exodus into his 
prophecy to God's people in exile. He's continuing the thought process of verse 2. And he goes into the first exchange, which again is Exodus from Egypt, where God says, I chose you, Israel, as my people. I called you. So in that first moment of Exodus, God gives his people a gift. And that gift is only given to his people, to those who are the people of God. They get to walk through, but the Egyptians do not. And the Egyptians are crushed under the weight of the waters. They are judged. The same waters that led to the salvation of God's people lead to the judgment of Egypt. And God is saying, this is the way that I work. I'm the God of exchange. There's a principle in play here that we learn more about as time goes along. Where God's way is that he, does, he, he works salvation through an exchange. Here, Egypt is the one whose lives are exchanged for the people of God. This is the first exchange. Israel didn't deserve this grace. They didn't deserve salvation, but they received this gift. This gift was given to them. It was not given to others. Others were judged. They were given mercy. This is a principle that's in play. Then in verse 4, he goes on. Isaiah says, God is still the same kind of God, and he is going to exchange now. He's going to exchange Babylon for you. You are going to be given up, and you're going to be able to get to return, and what's going to happen is Babylon is going to have to be judged. You don't deserve to go free. You don't deserve to return. It's all grace. In order for that to happen, there's going to be a change. There's going to be an exchange. In the past, it was Egypt, and now it's going to be Babylon. But get this. God then, Jesus Christ himself, places himself in the place of Egypt and Babylon. He says, I am the Lord your God, and I I am going to be the great exchange. I am going to be the one who is ultimately given up for you. In this case, I didn't deserve that either. In this case, he is perfect where Egypt and Babylon are not. But he's going to take on the sins of the world. He's going to take on the sins that have been committed, and he's going to be crushed. In the exchange, Jesus Christ gets the sin of the world and is crushed, and the people of God get grace from God. Jesus puts himself in the position of Egypt, in the position of Babylon, and he's the one who's exchanged now for the people of God, all by grace. This is the exchange that ultimately Christ goes through for us in the cross and in the resurrection. This gift of God, this gift of grace, since Jesus Christ's life has been exchanged, is limitless. It means that there is no degree of sin that you could have engaged in in the past, that you could be struggling with now in the present, or that you might find yourself involved in in the future. If your hope is in Jesus Christ, then because of the great exchange, there is no limit to the sin that can be forgiven because the, the merit of Christ's sacrifice on the cross is limitless. It means that there, there literally is no, there's nothing you could be guilty or ashamed about or afraid of that you could have done that could possibly separate you from the love of God because the exchange was so meritorious and so perfect, then all of your sins are forgiven for sure. Otherwise, you would have to say that your sins are greater than the perfection of Jesus Christ, the, the value of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. I don't think any of us believe that. But when we struggle with sin, 
when we, when we, we feel that weight of guilt and shame, we can begin to believe that maybe my sins aren't forgiven. Maybe my sins are greater than the grace of God. And it's just not possible because it's Jesus Christ who has been exchanged for you. I once heard the story of a fire that, that just blew through a farm, totally engulfed a farm. And as the owners uh, were going through the remnants of a, the barn, uh, it was just all ashes. They heard some uh, chirps coming from underneath the ashes, and they, they couldn't believe it. They, there was something living. And so they, they pushed back all of the, the ashes, and they found the charred corpse of a mother hen. And in the fire, in the moment when the, the chicks needed the love the most, needed the protection the most, needed the refuge, the salvation that the mother could offer them, the, the mother hen instinctually in the fire covered its babies, its baby chicks in the fire so that the chicks could live. This is a great picture of what Christ has done for us. Your sins, the sins you committed, rightfully mean that you should be judged, that you should, you should experience the judgment of God. But what Christ did is he is our refuge. He is our salvation. He is that mother hen. And in our moment of greatest need, he steps in and exchanges his life for our life so that we can walk away free and live a new life. The ultimate exchange of Jesus, going back to the first points, impacts our exodus. This section of 1 through 7, um, just to give you a little bit of insight in the way that often Old Testament passages are constructed, it's called a chiasm, okay, where the first verse and the last verse relate to each other, 1 and 7, and then 2 and 5 and 6, and then the middle is where you get to kind of the meat of the passage. But you often find it's like a sandwich where the, the beginning and the end correspond to each other. And so after, after Isaiah talks about God exchanging his life for us, he then backs it out and says, let me tell you how the life of Jesus being exchanged for you impacts what I just said about Exodus and about covenant. Because Jesus is our ultimate exchange, it also impacts our Exodus. He says, now, he says, what if my people are one day scattered out into every direction, north, south, east, and west. Is this kind of scattering of God's people so threatening that God cannot save them? No, he's saying, because I have given the great exchange, the exodus still applies. It doesn't matter where you are geographically. Through Christ, you still get redeemed. You still get restored. Will God save his people when they seem beyond his reach? The message here from verse 6 is that every son and every daughter whom he has purchased with the great exchange, the gift of his son, will be redeemed. There's no geographic space, and there's no sinful space where God does not say, if he says, I have called you by name and you are mine, then you indeed are his. You indeed are his. No matter what your waiting room looks like, no matter how much you're despairing, no matter how busy you've been trying to light fires and build golden calves, you're still his. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. It goes on, how does the ultimate exchange of Jesus impact our covenant with God? He says there in verse 7 that every person, not just from ethnic Israel, which was the case at the time pretty much, but now every tongue, tribe, and nation. His grace is limitless, not just for sinners. It's limitless for peoples. It's limitless for the world. That There are going to be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation 
who are called by his name in verse 7 and created for his glory that will be restored to him. So in this time of waiting, we have a choice. We have a choice. When you're in the darkness, when you're in the waiting room, you have a choice. You can live under the illusion that you can control your life and you can make yourself so busy trying to make the suffering go away. You can build idols. You can worship ideologies. You can worship things like utilitarianism. You can worship things like, um, like nationalism. You can worship things like uh, change happening in our culture. You can worship all kinds of things. You can worship success. You can worship comfort. And you can say to those things, if I can make you happen or if you will happen for me, then I'll ultimately be happy. And in that first way, all of it comes to nothing. There's no idol, there's no golden calf you can come up with that's going to get you out of the waiting room. The second way is you can get, you can despair. You can run out of options. You can get hopeless. The third way is you can put your hope in the Lord God. A hope that goes way beyond your happies and sads. A hope that goes beyond that. A hope of God, that the God who finds you when you're lost in the woods, who leads you out, who calls you by name and says that you're mine. It's the God of covenant. It's the God of exodus. It's the God of exchange. This is a God of substance. This is a God with hard edges. This is a God who Augustine also found he could cast his cares upon the Lord. And when his understanding of God was right, when it's this God, the covenant-keeping God, the God of exodus and the God of exchange, now when I cast my anxieties on this God, as I bring myself under the lordship of God, who he reveals himself to be, not my emotions, not my latest Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat feed. God himself, when I rest my cares in this God, then I can cast my cares upon the Lord and it sticks to God rather than passing through and coming right back to me. And this is something that takes time. Even Augustine, one of the greatest saints or Christians who's ever lived, he struggled. He struggled. He had times that were a struggle. And I know we have times that are a struggle too. But this morning, I want to ask you to identify with me. Where is your fire and where is your flood this morning? Where is your fire, your flood? What is your waiting room? What does it look like for you right now? I think it's really important to name that. Name that. Think about yourself. What are your tendencies when you're in that waiting room? Where do you turn besides to the living God? Where do you go? Do you go way one or way two? And how do you do that? Understand yourself. Be a student of your own uh, complexity and propensities. What do you do under pressure when you're in the waiting room? Repent of that. Own it and repent of that and say, God, you're going to have to do this a hundred or a thousand times. But continue to, to know yourself. Know the way you turn from God. And then instead, turn to the Lord. Turn to Augustine's God. Turn to this God of substance, of covenant, of exodus, of exchange. Give him all of your anxieties in the waiting room. Humble yourself before him, and he will lift you up. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. The more we do this, the more we live under the lordship of this God, this God of substance. He is not a phantom. He is not a wisp of air. He is the Lord God Almighty the more we can find ourselves in that waiting room, waiting not hopelessly, 
but with hope in our living God of grace. Let me pray for us. Lord, we just ask for your help. Lord, we recognize that we are in the waiting room, Lord, and we feel uh, the vulnerabilities of that. Lord, we uh, also recognize, Lord, it is true that we, we, also, we often put our hope in our own resources or in other people or in our government or in um, other entities that can help us, Lord, and we have a hard time putting our hope in you. Oftentimes, you're our last resort. And Lord, that should not be. Lord, because you're a God of covenant, you're a God of exodus, and you're a God of exchange. And we pray, Lord, you would help us to land our real requests, our real anxieties, to land them on your substantial character. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to see that you are enough for us when we're in the waiting room of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.